Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. The title of this podcast is Utility Scale Solar and Energy Storage System Grounding Electroconductor Configurations and More. So in this episode, what we're going to do is we are going to present a particular rumored certification exam question and then we're going to talk about it and go off on the subject for this whole podcast for like 20 minutes. To have fun and learn more about solar and storage, go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com. So the rumor goes something like this. There was this one particular solar certification exam, and it goes something like this. What should you look for with four different central inverters in the same location? And then there are four potential answers, A through D, which are A, one grounding electrode conductor, GEC, per inverter bonded and spliced at the main service point. B, five grounding electrode conductors, one at each inverter and another at the transformer. C, no grounding electrode conductors. And D, one grounding electrode conductor irreversibly spliced and connected to the main bonding point at the transformer or main service bus. So this is a topic for the discussion that's going to go on for about 20 minutes. We're going to go on and off of this topic and get into some really interesting stuff about utility scale solar and energy storage plants. Just talking about this. And also, by the way, if you were taking that test, they might have called that central inverter a central power conditioning unit. How about that? Let's see what Bill Brooks has to say. If this is a dedicated service for a PV system, and let's say each one of these are one megawatt inverters, and they're all coming together to a four MVA transformer or something like that, then the transformer is gonna have a GEC. Not the inverters. Not the inverters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they're probably wrong. So I would say, a would be correct mm -hmm. is that there'd be one GEC irreversibly spliced and connected to the main bonding point in the main service panel if there is a main service panel because there may not be there could be just a connection to the transformer how is that going to happen to you are they going to just it would just be like just for smaller inverters too right it's just yeah so let's say you had a main service switch board or something mm -hmm. like that some big piece of equipment switch gear that's going to take with overcurrent protection for each inverter. Right. So then there would be overcurrent protection in that case. If that was your situation, you have overcurrent protection for each of the four inverters at that location. And that service equipment would be connected to the ground and electrode conductor. The individual inverters would not be. The individual inverters are just going to bring their equipment grounding conductor to that point. And if they have a grounded neutral, which most inverters have, then that neutral will be grounded in the main service mm -hmm. equipment. So like on a big power plant too, you might do this like five, 10 times or something where you have multiple medium voltage transformers. Right. For each transformer, you have a GEC. Yeah, each transformer would have a GEC at the transformer pad. And mm -hmm. in this case, there might be an inverter pad that has mm -hmm. all the inverters and a transformer on it. Mm -hmm. And then also where you combine all those transformers that are a bigger transformer to go to high voltage there may be there may be or it could just be a switch gear mm -hmm. you know so if the transformer took you from whatever the voltage is let's say 690 volts ac or something like that or 600 volts ac or even if we have some thousand volt ac equipment 
or 800 volt AC equipment could take you up to 34.5 kV, the whole plant might be a 34.5 kV plant. And in that case, there would just be some large switch gear that would combine multiple 34.5 kV circuits. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, most cases, your service is actually at 34.5 kV. It's not at 800 volts or 600 volts or anything like that. It's not a lower voltage service at all. It's a medium voltage service. The medium voltage service is typically have a service disconnecting means that's going to be a 34.5 kV disconnect. And often it could be a recloser, some piece of equipment that has more capabilities than just simply a disconnect. It's got ground fault detection, it's got various things that are built into it and programmed, and it also may have a remote activation that the utility has control over so that if there is a fault on the system or there's a power outage or whatever, they can activate the recloser remotely and prevent the system from ever even coming on. So for that, where you're combining all these medium voltage circuits together, you have another GEC there, right? Well, at that service, there will be some type of a connection. Now, is that where the grounding connection is going to be? It's really going to be up to the utility how they configure their system because it could be a three-wire connection. It could be a four-wire connection to the utility. Different utilities have different circuit configurations. And so depending on their circuit configuration and their grounding requirements, that would all come from the utility. And we would just follow whatever requirements are. And there may not be a grounding conductor at that point because they may have the neutral. If it's a four wire, they may have a neutral and that neutral is going to be connected to ground at their substation and all. But they may dictate where that connection is made at a service at medium voltage. So the medium voltage services are very, very different than low voltage services that we have for buildings. And so we just go to their guidelines and their rules and we follow those. And then when we get to the secondary of a low voltage transformer from 34.5 down to let's say 600 volts or whatever it is, then that connection is not a service grounding electrode connection. That is a separately derived system grounding connection because now you have galvanic isolation between the 34.5 and the 600 volts. And so just like inside of a building where you go from 480 to 208, 208 side gets separately derived and separately grounded. Mm -hmm. But you still call it a grounding electrode conductor? We'll still call it a grounding electrode conductor, but it will not be connected to the main service grounding electrode conductor other than through building steel and things like that. So let's say you had a really huge solar farm and then you even had to go 10 miles across somewhere. And that mm -hmm. 10 miles was, I guess, your responsibility, mm -hmm. not the utility. So you're going high voltage for 10 miles. So for that medium to high voltage, then you're gonna have your own grounding electrode conductor? Right? Well, again, the grounding schemes when we get into medium and high voltage are very, very different. Mm -hmm. And they're completely dependent upon the utilities circuits and how they set them up at their substations. And so even though the National Electrical Code has information about when you have a grounding electrode conductor, how you would connect it, it doesn't necessarily mandate that those circuits have grounding electrode conductors. Mm -hmm. And so, only if you have a grounded circuit would you have a grounding electrode conductor. That is dictated by the utility first. So we go to the utility first, get the requirements, and then we open up the NEC and say, okay, the utility requires a grounding connection here. Therefore, we need a grounding electrode conductor because a grounding electrode conductor takes it from 
the grounding point on the system to earth and so that's the mm -hmm. vehicle if you will to get it to earth and then you have a grounding electrode that is in the earth that we connect to so if you were going from medium to high voltage and then the high voltage 10 miles away is what you're giving to the utility so the utility would still be interested in your medium voltage that's 10 miles away from where you're connecting to them it could, it could. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they're gonna be concerned about where the offtake point is. Mm -hmm. And so that point will have to be grounded according to their requirements. What you do on the other end of that line, 10 miles down the road, they're less worried about. Mm -hmm. All right. So mm -hmm. the switch gear and all the concerns are gonna happen at their service point. And that's typically the way things work, is the utility is focused on their service point, their requirements at that point. Once they take off, it's the engineer's job from there to determine how things are grounded from there on out. And that's going to take the engineering, which then says, okay, if the engineer says you have to ground the low voltage side of that transformer, then you use the National Electrical Code to do that. Yeah. And now we have like huge energy storage systems now that are 100 megawatts, 100 megawatt hours in that kind of range. Mm -hmm. Same type of thing, I guess? Like, yep. The exact same kind of connections and all that. Exactly, yeah. Because ultimately, these are all inverter based solutions, 100%. So, even though the characteristics of the lithium ion batteries they're using and all are very different than PV, on the other side of that inverter, their capabilities are virtually identical. Yeah. So the one thing about PV, though, is it's more spread out than energy storage. So how many megawatts are you going to put on a transformer, like parallel into a medium voltage transformer? That's a really good question. And I think there's lots of arguments, a lot of different ways on what makes sense. Ultimately, it comes down to cost transformer costs and the like. We certainly see a lot of large transformers in large PV systems. And so somebody's doing the math on that. But somewhere around probably four or five MVA would be the largest transformers you see. I mean, occasionally you hear about, I know in China they use stuff up to like seven MVA and all. You're getting into really, really high fault current capabilities when you get into those units and so that's problematic and you're getting really spread out even at 1500 volts those are massive arrays going into those transformers mm -hmm. and so i don't see the real benefit of it personally but i can't say that i've done 300 calculations on the subject either and said that oh this is clearly not cost effective i think that in the real world two to four megawatts or two to four mva tends to be the size range that most transformers are in large plants. And then some of those are a single inverter that are in that range to a transformer. And others, certainly string inverters have become a common method and becoming more common. And that's certainly something that I've been working on in my career is coming up with inverter cluster concepts and things like that, that you can connect directly to the secondary of a transformer without switch gear or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that concept, I think, ultimately can get you in a range that's very similar to, to very large central inverters, but you're dealing with 250 kilowatt inverters that are far easier to maintain and are more likely to have multiple options of replacement. The big problem on large-scale PV over the last 10, 15 years is that there's only a couple companies that are still in existence or have been in existence over the last 10 or 15 years. Most of the companies that sell products 
into that market have been in and out of the large scale market, some of them two or three times. And so the customer service for those large scale inverters is poor at best, extremely poor. So there are plenty of plants out there where as the inverters start to fail, they're faced with having to physically remove the inverter or bring in another inverter and set it next to an extremely large inverter because they can no longer get parts for it. That's a horrible situation. And so moving forward, we need to standardize on products that where we have three or four manufacturers who build very similar products. And then the challenge comes with large scale plants. How are you going to do all your monitoring, data monitoring and things like that? Because a lot of these inverters have data monitoring built into them. So you then have to have monitoring communications protocols that are consistent platform to platform. So you could take one company equipment and remove it and put in its place another manufacturer's equipment and then it still talks the same protocols and all Mm -hmm. that. And I think that's ultimately the big challenge with a lot of large scale is the communications protocols that are involved and making sure that everybody can talk the same language because we're asking for a lot out of our inverters these days. We're operating the inverters in a very advanced way. We're operating at non-unity power factors and we're doing all this grid support activities and all this kind of stuff that requires a lot of communication. Whereas the old school DUMS, you know, unity power factor inverter, we just plug it in and it's plug and chuck kind of thing. That's not the case anymore. So those are the challenges that happen. So like a container battery, was that like something around half a megawatt, a megawatt? Yeah, a megawatt like probably. So if you had a container battery that was a megawatt, so you might fit four of those on a transformer? You could. So yeah. you're cramming those containers together. You're going to have a lot of medium voltage transformers in a smaller area, especially than a PV system. Oh, absolutely. Yes. If the facility is dedicated to storage, that's going to be a much, much smaller facility. It's going to be more like a substation type of a facility. It's just going to be a glorified substation with storage in it. Essentially, that's what Mm -hmm. they look like. That being said, I think that the vast majority of new storage projects that are going in are going to actually focus on utility interconnections with solar. Because you've already got a utility interconnection built. And you've already put the PV generally where it's beneficial to connect to the grid. So these very large plants that are 100 to 500 megawatts in size are all located on transmission lines that have capacity. So if they have capacity during the day, they probably have lots of capacity at night. And so you can use the energy storage to augment the PV during the day if you had cloudy periods or whatever. And you can also use it to dispatch power and source power at night. So you can do both. And so it makes a lot of sense to use these very large PV power plants as energy storage plants because as you pointed out there's not a lot of room taken up by the energy storage and you've got a ready-made interconnection that's already built for however many hundred megawatts that you need you don't have to build the substation twice because these substations are very expensive I think the future over the next 10 years is going to be I would say a good portion of these energy storage projects are going to be augmenting PV sites and using that same interconnection. So if somebody's going to have a big solar farm and they're going to DC couple and put their solar and their energy storage together, 
on the DC side of an inverter. Then they're gonna have these batteries distributed throughout these huge solar fields, I guess. You could, yeah, that's one way to do it. Is there a different way of doing it? Because sure, I mean, I'd say most of the storage projects out there that I'm aware of are going in with their own inverters. So, so they, they're AC coupled. They're all AC yeah. coupled mm-hmm. systems. And there's good reasons why you might want to do that because mm-hmm. going back to the grid support activities and stuff like that, mm-hmm. there may be grid support things that the battery things are doing that the solar doesn't do mm-hmm. and vice versa. You hear the big DC couple people that are you know in favor of DC coupling mm-hmm. say like, well, then you're not clipping your PV and you can get a lot more for inverter and all that stuff. I mean, those are all arguments Mm -hmm. for each way. I mean, there's no clear winner in this case. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who tells you, they're just salespeople. There's great opportunities in the DC coupled world and there's great opportunities in the AC coupled world. Mm -hmm. To say that the problem is if you put all your eggs in the DC coupled world, there's only a few inverters out there that can do that. Mm -hmm. And very few of them were built with that inverter that has those capabilities. So you're really narrowing your focus on what inverters can even do a DC coupled arrangement with energy storage because they're all programmed and built for PV. Whereas inverters are fairly inexpensive these days. Mm -hmm. And so the hardware costs of the inverter relative additional cost to put it onto a battery is not that much. Mm -hmm. So the savings I don't think are magnanimous. Now, if you want to start from day one and build a plant, then DC coupling is makes a lot of sense, but it's got to be factored into the whole tariff of the project and everything like that and how it's being built because that's ultimately why they're able to sell those projects is that there's something about the characteristics of solar that don't match well with the tariff that the system is trying to produce power into and therefore they're having to augment it with energy storage so that they can essentially shift the peak correctly to make more money out of the electrons coming out of the system. And so, you know, projects like Next Tracker and other folks, they have these DC coupled options where essentially they can make the plant look like anything they want and essentially load shift their generation from the morning where it has very little value in the summertime and shift it all to the late afternoon and so you dispatch the battery in the late afternoon and evening until it's exhausted which essentially empties the battery and then in the morning you recharge it with cheap solar power or solar power that has very little value on the system you dramatically improve the overall cost or value of the project. But that's because it's all based on how much, what the tariff is that the plant is built on. So so how big are those Next Tracker batteries they're using to DC couple with? And Next Tracker, of course, can AC and DC couple. Right, absolutely. So there's different designs. So they're using flow batteries and the flow batteries that I've personally seen are, you know, 20 to 50 kilowatt hours, something like that. And they're essentially dedicated per tracker so there's a storage unit that's one of their configurations a storage unit per tracker Uh and then that basically goes through a single inverter that transitions both the solar and the storage and a lot of the energy during the day actually bypasses the inverter completely because essentially it's just a dc to dc coupling of the 
PV and the storage. Cool. Yep. Yeah, I'd imagine that AC coupling is just more future proof because you know you're going to have you know however many volts of AC forever, or you have transformers to convert things. Yeah, the way I like to explain it is the AC power is a common language that everybody speaks. You know, 60 hertz is our common... Except for Thomas Edison. Yeah, exactly. And so we speak 60 hertz in the United States. Once you get to 60 hertz, you can go to any voltage you want. That doesn't mean that in DC you can't do the same kind of things. It's just much more specialized equipment. We can essentially order transformers, whatever voltages we want, in any configurations we want. And they're very dumb, simple and effective pieces of equipment, whereas a DC coupling activity is more complex because now we're dealing with voltages and differing voltages and making everybody happy and what's the best voltage for lithium ion versus solar, and they're all different. Hmm. And so the common language of AC makes a lot of sense, and as you point out, there's lots of products that people are going to build for that market. And they're not going to build them just for solar. They're going to build them for the storage market. They're going to build them for the general electrical market and things like that. Yeah, and by the way, Bill is speaking at 60 cycles per second. That's right. So we had to slow this down for all of us normal people so we could understand the genius. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And to learn more about the sun and everything else, go to solarsean.com.